0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. A lot to get to over the next hour with five guests. We'll start with the Cancer Action Network of Ohio and their activities at the Statehouse this week. Then I'll talk with somebody from the U.S. Department of Agriculture about invasive pests in Ohio. In about 20 minutes, Kate Burdett has information about Ohio's bike trails. In the second half hour, I'll talk with John Barker, who heads the Ohio Restaurant Association. And I'll wrap up the hour talking to Dwayne Casares from Directions for Youth and Families about the new facility they're building to provide multiple services to people in the former Eastland Mall, Kimberly Parkway area. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Leo Almeida, who is the Director of Government Relations for the Ohio branch of the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. You had uh, some uh, big doings at the State House this week.
1: Yes, that's right. We had um, our annual Cancer Action Day, which is our advocacy day at the State House. And we were very excited to welcome um, over 80 advocates from across the state to the State House. Um, meeting with legislators and uh, their staff to talk about some of the issues that are really important to cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers.
0: Okay, and before we get into that, tell me what the Cancer Action Network is.
1: So we are the uh, policy arm of the American Cancer Society. So we work at every level level of government to work on policies that will Um, provide more access to care, uh, reduce the financial burden of cancer, and try to make it easier for those people who are fighting cancer and hopefully will survive their cancer.
0: How uh, big of an issue is cancer in Ohio?
1: Unfortunately, it's it's a big issue. So um, uh, we estimate that over 74,000 Ohioans will be diagnosed with cancer this year. Um, And that's, you know, unfortunately a large number um, that covers
0: You know, it's interesting when you look at numbers like that, because 42,000 people in Ohio have died of COVID in the three years uh, since the pandemic started. But your numbers show 25,000 per year die of cancer. So it's likely that 75,000 have died of cancer during that time. And with COVID, the vast majority of those who died were were very old. And with cancer, you know, all bets are off on that kind of thing.
1: And, you know, when we think about COVID, that's also a good example of um, the um, kind of uh, environmental impact um, on on cancer patients. So, you know, when cancer patients are going through um, chemo and radiation, that affects their immune system. And so things like COVID or, you know, even a bad flu season um, can have a major
2: impact on, on a cancer
0: patient. Yeah, that's right. It, it, there's a, a, no question that probably more cancer survivors, uh, people who were cancer survivors, perhaps succumbed to COVID who would not have been gone by now without the pandemic. Yeah, that's unfortunately true. So uh, during this day at the state house when you were rallying legislators, tell us about some of the things that, that you were looking for and what happened.
2: So we were talking to legislators
1: about a couple of different issues. Um, one of which was on House Bill 24, uh, which is a bill that would provide um, private insurance coverage as well as Medicaid coverage for biomarker testing. And biomarker testing is a way for um, a cancer patient's doctor to look at mutations within their uh uh, cancer cells to figure out exactly what treatment will work and won't work for them. Um, and so if they discover that a cancer patient has a specific mutation, they can then say, okay, we know that X number of drugs, let's say there's there's three drugs out there um, that can specifically target that mutation, um, that gives that person a um, an even better chance of fighting their cancer. Um, and in some cases, we've, we're seeing that. Um cancer patients are able to avoid traditional chemo and radiation by going on a targeted therapy instead because they were able to get that biomarker testing done. But unfortunately, not all insurance uh, companies will cover uh, what we call comprehensive biomarker testing, and so this bill will fix that issue um, to ensure that if a cancer patient in Ohio needs biomarker testing, that they're doctor can get the testing done and that the patient can have that covered by their insurance provider.
0: Did you have any indication that there's a hope that that will go through?
1: Uh, we certainly hope so. So this bill was um, introduced uh, last year, um, later in the, the two-year legislative cycle. And even though it was introduced later, we were able to get it um, through the House uh, Health Committee last year. And so we're really happy with that progress. We have reintroduced it this year in the new legislative session as House bill 24. It's currently in the insurance committee and it's had two hearings already. Um, so we're hoping that we'll have another hearing and, and try to get that voted out by the insurance committee soon and then, um, start working on uh, getting a house vote and then get it over to the Senate for that same
0: process. Talking with Leo Almeida, he is the Director of Government Relations for the Ohio branch of the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network. In your press release, you mentioned that smoking is still one of the big contributors to cancer. It must be really frustrating for you to see uh, you know, a, a preventable factor involved in all this.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So smoking is the single largest contributing risk factor to cancer in the United States. Um, increasing the risk of at least 12 cancers Um, and smoking is also responsible for an estimated 33.8% of cancer deaths in Ohio specifically Um, and it's estimated that 20,200 Ohio adults die from smoking every year Um, not just cancer um, but cancer of course is included
0: Yeah, so if it's a third of the deaths that would be uh, better than 8,000 from smoking and uh... Uh, so what's going on with the high school, with the, the youth smoking rate, uh, you know, and now we've got complications with vaping involved and all that, but, you know, cigarettes are a a whole lot more expensive now than they were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Is that helping?
1: So, you know, there certainly have been advancements that have reduced, uh, the cigarette smoking rate in Ohio, um, but it is still above the national average, um. specifically when it comes to youth, um, obviously we do still see youth uh, smoking cigarettes, but um, what's even more popular is e-cigarettes or what some people would refer to as as vaping. Um, So here in Ohio, 36.7% of high school students use tobacco products Um, and that includes 4.9% who smoke cigarettes, uh, 7.2% who smoke cigars, Uh, 9.9% who use smokeless tobacco, Um, and then again, what's really popular is the 29.8% who use electronic
0: cigarettes. Wow. So where does uh, the Cancer Action Network stand on this type of problem and policies to try to rein it in? So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we work
1: at every level of government, um, and we do believe that the only way to um,
2: eradicate this
1: issue is by having all all levels of government working together um, to just uh, resolve this problem and so um, we work at the local level to pass ordinances to um, uh, help prevent uh, tobacco retailers who might be selling to someone under the age of 21 which is of course illegal um, but actually in uh, columbus ohio um, in december we worked on a local ordinance that was passed that will end the sale of flavored tobacco um, which is really what is being utilized by Big Tobacco to target and addict uh, our youth and we're working on
0: I was looking uh, at uh, tobacco taxes for Ohio and neighboring states, and boy, they're all over the board. It's a dollar sixty a pack of cigarettes in Ohio, two sixty in Pennsylvania, two dollars in Michigan, a dollar ten in Kentucky, and only ninety nine cents in Indiana. Is there anything on, on that front that you're interested in at all?
1: for tobacco control and cessation programs uh, from uh, tobacco tax, as well as um, uh, the tobacco settlement money that comes to our state. Um, But again, we are only currently spending 14.5 million of that for tobacco control and cessation programs um, when the CDC recommends that we uh, should be funding prevention in Ohio at $132 million. So we're way under what is that
0: That's always uh, the tobacco tax too kind of controversial because some people say that it hinders lower income people more and with inflation the way it is, it may not be as incumbent to do it as as it might be at other times. Is that fair to say? Uh, It certainly is and and that's why we need to
1: spend the money on tobacco prevention and cessation programs so that way, one, we can hopefully prevent people from even getting addicted. But if they are addicted um, and, you know, spending that that additional money um, because they have this addiction um, those cessation programs uh, can help them um, try to break that that habit and, and hopefully um, re- either reduce their addiction or, or relieve them of the addiction and therefore saving them money right they wouldn't be needing to spend any money on tobacco products if they are able to get themselves off of the um, the different products that they
0: might be using it was uh, just a story this week out of the Cleveland Clinic that a vaccine that they're trying on triple negative breast cancer, which I guess is more aggressive and more common in younger women that get breast cancer, that a vaccine showed an immune response in all 14 participants of a study that they're doing, and they're moving on to the next phase. Pretty exciting stuff. Are there any other great news on, on the cancer battlefront? Yeah,
2: so you know, that's actually
1: one of the reasons that we are um really pushing for support for House Bill 24, the, the biomarker testing bill, um, because right now um, there are numerous uh, clinical trials across the country that are utilizing um, uh, biomarker information um, to develop new um, new and advanced treatments. And so, you know, I, I don't know for sure if, if biomarkers was, were related to that specific be- vaccine, uh, but what we are seeing are these clinical trials that are looking so specifically at those biomarkers to figure out exactly what mutations um, they can target with new uh, therapies.
0: Talking with Leo Almeida, he is the Director of Government Relations in Ohio for the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. Anything else you'd like to add?
1: Um, You know, one more thing uh, that I want to bring up is that um, in uh, the budget, we are also looking to continue funding for the Ohio Breast and Cervical Cancer Project. Um, This is a a program that helps provide free uh, mammograms and cervical exams um, and other prevention services to approximately 7,000 low-income Ohioans each year. And so this program um, is a huge benefit to uninsured or underinsured uh, women in Ohio. And we're not asking for an increase, we're just asking to continue the current funding um, at about 1.1 $1. $1 million dollars per year.
0: Okay and uh, uh, Leo if folks want more information about your uh, organization and the efforts that you're doing and how they can help uh, where do they do that?
1: So they can definitely find us on social media um, but they can also go to our website which is fightcancer.org forward slash
0: Ohio fightcancer.org Ohio. Uh, Lou Almeida, again, he's the Director of Government Relations in Ohio for the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network. Thanks so much for your time today, Leo. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Katherine Bronski. She is the National Policy Manager for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Plant Protection and Quarantine Program. How are you?
3: Great. Thanks so much for having me on your show today to talk about Invasive Plant Pest and Disease Awareness Month.
0: Yeah, thanks for talking to us. This is the time of the season, I guess. Uh, you know, Mother Nature's waking up, and uh, and I guess lots of interesting and important things are happening in the insect world and elsewhere, right? <laughs>
3: Oh yes, April is a good time to start looking for invasive pests and diseases. It's a time when many invasive plant pests start to emerge like you mentioned and they're easier to see. A lot of times this time of year in April there's less foliage on the trees, so it makes it easier to see the damage that wood-boring beetles like Asian longhorn beetle or emerald ash borer create as they bore holes into the trees. And many pests such as spotted lanternfly or spongy moss are still in the egg stage at this time. And we can stop them from spreading even before they emerge by scraping off and destroying the egg masses. April's also a good time to get outdoors. You may be working in your garden, taking more walks in the neighborhood with the nicer weather, and you can be on the lookout for these pests and diseases in your own community that will really help to protect our forests and crops and landscapes.
0: What are some of the things that are of concern in Ohio?
3: Sure, in Ohio, we have several federal quarantines for invasive pests. One is the Asian longhorn beetle this beetle attacks hardwood trees and um, usually lives inside of the tree, so we don't see signs of the beetle itself, but what we look for is the damage that it causes in these hardwood trees. There are perfectly round holes that the beetle makes makes when it emerges from the tree. It's a little bit bigger than the size of a pencil. Um, sometimes you can see sawdust buildup around the tree bases or even chewed round depressions in the bark. Those are the egg sites. Those Something to be on the lookout, um, especially this time of year, looking for those, um, the signs of Asian longhorn beetle. Another pest to be on the lookout for is spongy moth. This moth attacks. 300 species of trees and shrubs it lays its eggs on pretty much anything so really to help stop the spread we look out for the egg masses which are these light colored kind of cottony looking buffs it gets the name spongy because from a distance it kind of looks like a spongy egg mass Um, and so we make sure to look out for these before they even can spread to new areas Um, Another one for Ohio to be on the lookout for Is spotted lanternfly This is a very beautiful bug uh, Brightly colored uh, Adults um, but it is an excellent hitchhiker and unfortunately can tr- also travel on any sort of item, cars, your gear, uh, anything that you might have outdoors um, very easily, and people can unknowingly spread it to new areas.
0: The spotted lanternfly is interesting because it is, as you mentioned, striking. Uh, it's <laughs> When it's in its uh, uh, moth stage, it's one of the most beautiful moth or butterfly-like uh, insects I've ever seen. And yet... This is putting, uh, I guess, the wine industry at risk and, and other things as well, right?
3: That's right. Yeah, it is beautiful to look at. But unfortunately, it feeds on such a wide range of fruit, ornamental and woody trees that uh, we do consider it a pest. And we recommend that if you see it, squash it Um, in places in Ohio where it maybe hasn't been found before. You can always report it. There's a lot more information and pictures if you want to see this uh, beautiful invasive pest uh, on our website at hungrypest.com.
0: It can't make it any easier for you when they look that good. (laughs) (laughs) another one that we've been talking about for years here is the emerald ash borer that's another one it's a bright green color it's pretty striking as well but that's killing trees by the millions around the midwest i guess
3: Yes, I agree. The beautiful green emerald ash borer. This is another hungry pest that we are on the lookout for because it attacks ash trees. And these are borers, so we don't usually see the adults as they are inside the tree under the bark. But what they do is tunnel under the bark and uh, damage the tree from the inside. So it's another pest that we are on the lookout for to make sure it doesn't spread to new areas. And one of the main ways that uh, we help to prevent the of emerald ash borers and Asian longhorn beetle um, and other wood boring pests like that is to make sure not to move firewood because you can unknowingly move the firewood with these beetles inside. And when they emerge, they can come out to the forest area in a whole new area, and it cause a whole new infestation. So we recommend uh, to buy certified heat-treated firewood. If you're traveling and moving long distances, buy it where you're going to burn it. If you gather firewood to burn at your home, that's okay. Just don't travel far distances with it, and you'll really help to protect our our natural resources.
0: Talking with Catherine Bronski, she's with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Plant Protection and Quarantine Program. When they come from places like China or, you know, some other country, how are they getting here in the first place?
3: Yeah, USDA works hard to make sure that we protect our borders even before pests arrive here. We work alongside U.S. Customs and Border Protection to make sure items are pest-free. And we do know that these invasive pests cost the U.S. an estimated $40 $40 billion in each year in damages to crops, trees, and other plants. Uh, because they are so invasive and threaten our food supply, environment, and economy, we really try to uh, work with our partners to stop the spread um, offshore um, and at the borders as they do inspections of agricultural goods, and then even domestically as, the, as they get to our soil here.
0: I suppose if you have uh, a beloved tree on your property that is starting to die, rather than just kind of pass it off as being one of those things, it might be a good idea to look into exactly what's happening to it, right?
3: Yes. Great recommendations. Uh, I say the actions that you take in your own backyard, in your neighborhood, that can help protect vital resources here in the U.S. So we encourage everyone to learn about how to recognize and report signs of these invasive pests. Go to hungrypests.com uh, and you can see more information of what they look like, where they are, how to prevent their spread, and even how to report them.
0: Okay. Katherine Bronski with the USDA. She's the National Policy Manager for the Plant Protection and Quarantine Program. Anything else you'd like to add?
3: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, we appreciate you being on the lookout for us.
0: Great. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. thanks for listening this is columbus perspective on the fan here's kate burdett
5: we're talking with kate harley she is the active transportation manager for the ohio department of transportation and in that uh in that arena today that means she's going to be talking about bicycling in ohio hi kate hi Thanks so much for joining us. When you say active transportation manager, that covers things like riding bikes. And and what other other aspects of transportation are you in charge of?
6: Of course. So active
5: transportation largely means uh, walking and biking. Well, you definitely have a lot of responsibility. I did not know this, but Ohio has more miles of bike trail than any other state in the union. Is that correct?
6: Ohio has more designated U.S. bike routes than any other state in the country as of um, just this past year. Yeah, and the difference between bike trails and U.S. bike routes is that um, U.S. bike routes often are made up of both off-road sections, so trails, but also have
5: some on-road sections as well. Got it. Okay, and I I know in my personal experience around the Central Ohio area, I'm noticing a lot more bike lanes popping up on regular road roadways, um, yeah. which I think is such a great transition for uh you know our our infrastructure to be making. So the U.S. Yeah. Bicycle Route System is, is a pretty big one, and um, here in Ohio. There are trails, there are routes on roadways. There are many, many places, more than 1,500 miles of bike trails here for people to enjoy. As the weather is improving, I think a lot of people are getting those bikes out I know uh, a few years back during that pandemic, I remember hearing a lot about people buying up bicycles. They were hard to come by. So let's talk a little bit about what opportunities are out there for bicycle enthusiasts in the state of Ohio. What what can you share from your standpoint?
6: Ohio has, like you said, tons of miles of trails. And so for people who are interested in biking, for travel, for tourism, for recreation. Um, there are a lot of trail options for you. Um, whether you're in um, Central Ohio and utilize trails such as, you know, the Olentangy Trail, um, which is actually one of our like heaviest um, commuter trails in the state. A lot of people. Um, use that for transportation, Um, as well as like the Alum Creek Trail. There's definitely a lot of good options in Central Ohio. You could even hop on a trail on the west side of Columbus and bike almost entirely to Cincinnati on bike trail. Um, And that's part of the Ohio to Erie Trail, which ultimately connects uh, Cincinnati all the way up to Lake Erie, um, almost entirely on
5: trail. That's kind of amazing to think about um, going from Columbus to Cincinnati—a two-hour drive uh, by bicycle and on bike trails. That's that's kind of an exciting concept to consider. What advice, Kate, would you offer to someone that's just starting out? And okay, um, what should I? What should what should a new novice cyclist be looking for in in their trail experience?
6: I would say for novice cyclists. Um, Definitely checking out some of the trail options, um, going online, looking at some of the different um, trails that are available. A lot of these trails are managed by park districts across the state, and they often have really good, really detailed information about um, their trails. You know, whether they're paved, you know, most of the trails that um, we're generally talking about related to transportation are paved or at least are like a crushed limestone that are, you know, pretty rideable for mm-hmm. most people, but definitely worth um, some investigation online, checking out some of the trails um, to see where they start, where they end, making sure you're aware of, you know, if any of them do have on-road sections that, you know, you, you might want to be aware of if you're comfortable doing that or not. Um, and there's some really great information. Um, that we have available through ODOT to kind of help get you started on that. So we have developed um, a statewide trail and bikeways map, and it basically highlights some of the longest distance paved trails um, that are available in the state of Ohio. So it's, it's not an entirely exhaustive list of every single trail, um, but it does highlight really those like longer paved trails um, so that you know, generally where they are, what their name is, and it's easy to, to go and find a little more information about
5: them online. That sounds like a great starting place. What is that website address?
6: So if you go to transportation.ohio.gov backslash active transportation, that will take you to our ODOT's active transportation webpage. Um, and under education and promotion, you'll be able to find links to our Ohio Bikeways brochure and map.
5: Excellent. Excellent. A lot of resources available there on the ODOT website as well. It's really... Exciting to think about, um, you know, more and more people. You mentioned commuter biking in the state of Ohio. More and more people opting away from a, you know, a vehicle to ride their bike to work or to the store or things like that. Have Have you noticed a bit of growth in that area in your experience here?
6: Yeah, we've seen um, a, a pretty steady amount in terms of the data that we get through the census. Um, I think around two percent of Ohioans report actually commuting to work by bike. But we know that transportation is way more than just how you get to and from your day job. It includes all of the trips in between, trips you take alone, trips you take with your family. Um, And so, you know, at least in the past few years through the COVID pandemic, um, we did see, I think nationally and also here in Ohio, Um, You know, bike sales increased by a lot. Um, It was hard to even purchase the bike. And we also saw that trail usage, at least within central Ohio, at one point was up like 200%. So there's definitely been... Um, some changes in behavior over the last few years. Um, and But we always have, and we always will see people using bikes to get to where they need to go, whether um, out of necessity um, or whether out of choice.
5: What better time than now, the spring and summer coming on, the better weather. Get out there, wear a helmet. That's an important reminder. Get out there on your bike and explore more of the Buckeye State. Kate Harley, active transportation manager for the Ohio Department of Transportation. I really appreciate your expertise and your insight today. Thanks for having me. This
0: is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Be sure to catch Face the State with Tracy Townsend on 10TV at 1130 this morning. Here's Tracy with a preview. Good morning.
1: It's Tracy Townsend coming up on Face the State. Shouts at the State House, the legislative debate that involves Ohio's Constitution and reproductive rights. Plus, high-tech law enforcement. We go one-on-one with one of the minds trying to instill trust and transparency with technology.
5: Sports gambling is in our state. Clay Gordon joins us to follow the money and ask where all that cash is going.
0: That's again at 11.30 this morning on 10 TV. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me, John Barker, who's the president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. How are you doing? I'm good. How about you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the Ohio Restaurant Association.
2: So we're a you know trade association, business trade association, that represents all of our restaurants really across the state, our independent restaurants, our mid-sized restaurants, mom and pops, and even the chains. We, uh, we work with everybody.
0: We checked in with you a number of times during the height of the pandemic to see how things were going. Uh, Obviously, three years of a lot of ups and downs. How are things going these days with the restaurant industry?
2: You know, things are definitely better than they were in uh, 20 and 21. 2022 was a little bit of an odd year because we still had remnants of um, COVID around. And uh, so we had some, you know, some months that were pretty rough, uh, mainly because we had a hard time getting employees. To, uh, to come to, you know, come to work. And uh, so that has progressively gotten better. Um, we're still short anywhere between about 10 and 15% of uh, where we need to be for restaurants to be fully staffed. And so you'll still notice that when you're out at restaurants where it still looks like, you know, people are a little bit overwhelmed who are taking care of you. And um, it's not because they don't want to. It's just, you know, almost all restaurants that, that we talk to across the state are still shorthanded. So, you know, that, that puts a bit of a crimp on, on their operations. They're not able to, for example, have all the tables open that they might want to. And, um, you know, and then as we kind of look even at this summer, one of the things that uh, happens, you, know, you start getting the warmer weather, you need a lot of young high school and college kids to work, you know, the uh, you know, kind of what I call the resort areas, attractions, people working you know, out on
0: patios. So we're we're trying to gear up and get people to come back to work. Uh, how big is the industry in Ohio, and how does it compare to twenty nineteen before the pandemic
2: yeah we're um you know we're down a little bit from before the pandemic, but coming back uh in the state of Ohio, we have about five hundred and fifty thousand people that work in the industry, and um, that's down you know from where we were. We're calling it back um you know in in terms of number of restaurants, we have about twenty two thousand restaurants across the, uh, across the state. And, um, that number's down a little bit, but, uh, we've actually seen, seen the last four or five months, we're seeing the net amount
4: of openings exceed the closings. And so, so that's a good sign.
0: What do you see, uh, for the future of, uh, downtown restaurants in big cities where the workforce has still has not returned with a lot of people working from home?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. We track that uh, very carefully by the month and, uh, What we're seeing, the national numbers, Dave, are about 50 percent of the offices now have people coming back into them. And that's been steadily increasing. But it's not, you know, it's not high enough Um, because, you know, before the pandemic, you know, you had those offices, typically occupancy people in there, 80, 90 percent. And so that drop off has put a lot of pressure on restaurants that made their money in our downtowns across the state and um, you really see it particularly at breakfast and lunch which is really driven by office workers Uh, if you're in a if you're a great restaurant you're downtown near a stadium or near a theater or something like that you're probably doing okay because your business model really drives off of people coming in for an an event Uh, but when you look at uh, you know a lunch restaurant that really used to be supported say for example in downtown columbus nationwide you know had thousands and thousands of people in their office buildings and now they do not. So you look around that area, there's not as many restaurants right now.
0: Talking with John Barker, he's the president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. What about small towns? And I'm thinking places like Galleon, Jackson, Salina, Ironton, places like that. How, how are the restaurants doing in places like that?
2: Um, some of them are doing all right, particularly if they were able to figure out a way to shift a little bit to that takeout customer. And in some cases, you know, maybe they got into delivery. And so that really is how they got through the worst of the worst during the pandemic. And now they have to continue with that model. I, you know, I think what's happening is people just changed so much during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we all have in our mind nostalgia and what we would like it to be. We go sit at the counter, you know, of a mom and pop little restaurant. And uh, there's still, you know, opportunities for that. And there's still, those are out there. But younger customers today, uh, you know what they pick? They pick places like Chipotle, right? They pick. Panera, they pick, you know, things that are much more modern, sushi restaurants. I mean, they're much more, you know, uh, willing to kind of try different restaurants and food delivery styles. And so restaurants have to adjust, even in small towns, you know, where you have young, a lot of young consumers. you got to adjust, and uh, that's our advice to them is to use technology. You really focus on their menu uh, and meet the customers, you know, where they want to be. And if you do that, you know, you can make it, whether you're in, in a big city or a little city, you just you know, have to be very good at it.
0: Do the food delivery places, are they pretty much everywhere now in, in the smaller towns of ten or 15,000 people? Do they have a multiple choice of delivery uh, places to get their food to their house?
2: You know, you know it, it really depends on the city. The smaller you get, the less that there is of that. And so what we see is restaurants sometimes doing their own delivery or really asking people to come and pick it up on their own because picking up the food, that's the, the most profitable for the restaurant if somebody comes and picks it up when you do the deliveries, you do have to cover a delivery charge, which can be as high as 30%, which is a lot. I mean, it just, it really changes the economics for that restaurant. They either have to charge a lot more money or lose money on that transaction. Um, but you're seeing more of Uber Eats and you're seeing Postmates and, you know, DoorDash, these kinds of folks that are out there doing this and they do a pretty good job, right? Um, that was how we all survived for a period of time. Right. And now it's just another, it's just another option. But, you know that delivery piece you know for a sit down restaurant might have used to be 1 to 2% of their sales it was just an anomaly now it's 10 15 depending on the concept it could be 20 25% of their total sales so you got to get
0: good at it it really is an amazing journey when you look back over the last 3 years because as you mentioned these delivery places were key to keeping some of these places open. And yet, in a way, they can almost act like, I don't want to say an enemy, but a force against some of the things that they're trying to do to move forward.
2: Yeah, you know, they have their own business model and they need to make money. So they charge a lot for it. And, um, you know, that's why we, we talk to restaurants and say, you really got to do that analysis, break even analysis, on whether that's the thing for you to do or, or to just focus more on takeout. Or maybe even, you know, some of our, like in Dayton, there's a uh, small group of people that... Uh, went together and put together their own little, uh, inside Dayton delivery service and, and put that together at a much lower cost than using the third party guys. So, you know, innovation and uh, working hard and being smart that never goes out of style. And, uh, that's what, you know, restaurants are having to do these days. It's just harder to make money. It just, it really is. Um, people might have it in their minds, what it's like to run a restaurant that it's very profitable you when know, you just sit around and count the money. And that is not the case. Um, for many people that first restaurant up to, you know, maybe they get two or three restaurants, they are scratching and sometimes they don't even pay themselves just to make sure the restaurant can, you know, make all of its own, its own payments, everything from the lease payments to the, you know, food. For example, uh, our food costs in this industry have been up anywhere between about 12 and 18% month after month going on the second year now. Um, and uh, anybody who knows anything about a business when your number one item like that is going up at those percentages, that's a very difficult existence, and so um, you got to get good at everything.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, with wages on the increase and on the retail level, the you know the cost of a dozen eggs have more than tripled in the last couple of years. It's that's just uh, more obstacles for restaurants to have to deal with. Dave, we're
2: having the eggs delivered by Brinks trucks these days, so. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no it's uh you know if you've been to the grocery store what you have noticed uh is food costs up in those mid-teen numbers you know going up and up and up and some items up higher than others of course right and so grocery stores have passed all those costs on what's interesting is the value equation has turned out to be a little bit better at restaurants because um, restaurants are a little less willing to take those gigantic price increases because they have a very intimate relationship with their consumer right so We've seen restaurants more in like the six seven, eight percent range They've taken it up year over year, whereas grocery stores are in the uh, mid teens so uh, that's helped a little bit. That's made um, you know on you know we're all paying more everywhere we go, uh, but you're paying a little less of an increase when uh, had most of the restaurants you go to.
0: Talking with John Barker, president of the Ohio Restaurant Association, California passed a law to create a board that oversees fast food with wages and working conditions. But there's been an effort by the restaurant industry successfully to put that on the ballot statewide in California next year. But between things like that and unions uh, moving in with Starbucks, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on restaurants from those fronts as well.
2: There is. And, you know, in an industry like the one that we've been dealing with here the last couple of years, this is the worst time ever to have these things arrive. Because, again, if you know anybody who has a restaurant, just ask them. They'll, they'll you know, walk you down through their profit and loss statement, what their cash flow is like. They, they are really struggling. And so these efforts that are coming out, these are all, you know, attempts to kind of take away the ability for business owners to have to operate in the real market. And, and when you're in the real market, you have to take care of your people. You have to pay a fair wage. You have to uh, make sure you have a full set of benefits, depending on the type of restaurant you have. And if you're not, you're not going to be able to attract and retain the best people. Most of these things that we're seeing out there, whether it's you know unionization of restaurants or you mentioned this fast act in California, these are from people who have nothing to do with the industry at all who want to regulate you know business and really regulate everything that they see out there and uh, restaurants because it's so much made up of independence you know it can be it can appear from the outside to be something easy to sort of uh, go after and uh, you know our restaurateurs in California pushed back on this right and said no we're not we're not taking this and uh, they were able to get it on about to let you know let the public choose on something like this once they understand what this thing is all about setting up an artificial wage in California for just fast food restaurants, which is just amazing because you think about who's in the fast food restaurants working. It's our high school and college kids. And uh, they want to set a starting wage for high school and college kids at $22 an hour, um, which, you know, would be wonderful if you and I were in college right, or high school make that kind of money, but no business can operate like that. Right? These are people that walk in with zero skills. And uh, so it's, you know, paying a real minimum wage in California, you know probably something like 15 would be more kind of the market wage in, in California but running it up to 22 and to put all these boards in place to regulate this um it's just going to drive people out of that state you know it's uh, and that's that's what I think you'll see if, if this thing goes through but fortunately it's put off until uh, both uh till uh, more than a year from now
0: that kind of debate is interesting to me and I know that you spent more than 20 years as an executive with Wendy's and there's kind of two sides of an argument with that one is these fast food restaurants, the workers in places like that, those were never intended to be the kind of jobs that would provide a living wage. They're more for kids and people new in the workforce to develop their skills. And then there's the other argument that says, if you're a business person, you should expect to pay your employees a livable wage.
2: And I tell you, in most of the restaurants um, where you have adults, or you have people who have made it more of a career, that is the case. So, for example, at all the... uh restaurants that, that um, have, have servers, people that serve you at the table, the average amount of money that that individual makes, average, is $27 an hour. And, again, you can arrive with zero education and zero skills, not even a high school degree, and be a server making $27 an hour. And so, you know, we kind of flip this whole thing on its head. You know, th- this industry is the opportunity for a lot of people who don't have all the other advantages. You know, they don't have a lot of education, they don't have training. This is a place to come in and, and make a good wage. And then if you decide to stay, you can so quickly move up through this industry. You can move up and, uh, you know, and be an assistant manager, a manager, a regional manager. And you're starting to, you know, talk about jobs that pay anywhere between $50,000, $70,000 a year. And a district manager can, you know, get a company car. I mean, you could do really well in this industry. And just you could talk to thousands of people who have been in it and have done that. And, um, and, you know, again, the, the, the folks that are criticizing this have never worked. I worked in restaurants when I was younger. Um, and, of course, I've had different roles in, in my years at Wendy's. And I will tell you the franchisees talk about opportunities for people all the time. That's what they talk about because, you know, they've got their opportunity. And they run mo- they run most of the fast food restaurants, the franchisees do. And so they, they really truly believe in that. And um, so, you know, we think, uh, you know, we think minds will prevail on this
0: one. John Barker, he's the president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. Thanks for your time today, John. Sure appreciate it. Better, Dave. Take care. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He is the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. How you doing, Dwayne?
4: I'm doing good, Dave. How are you?
0: I'm good. I understand that you're back from the north.
4: Yes, yes. I went to our 49th state um alaska so it was uh, awesome i went dog sledding i felt like Yukon cornelius it was
0: awesome <laughs> and all, all i could think of is thank goodness that you didn't get mauled by a bear because if you had left your remains up there people would have thought you were nuts
4: <laughs> well i would tell you this crossed my mind and we were outside of willow which is in the middle of nowhere and uh, i thought if we run into a bear or a moose i hope these dogs know how to fight <laughs>
0: Oh, man, that's great. Uh, Tell us what Directions for Youth and Families is. Uh, We...
4: a nonprofit social service agency uh, offering mental health services we, we and counseling services. We work in a lot of the school districts. Uh, we have over 50 licensed therapists. All of our work is outreach. We work in homes and schools and in the community, so we don't want transportation or child care to be a barrier to uh, receiving uh, um, uh, therapeutic services. We also have two after-school centers that offer uh, leadership development, homework help, computer labs, as well as dance and music and, and um uh, fitness classes uh it just actually they, art, art classes they have all kinds of stuff it's actually awesome
0: so is the mental health uh situation with kids these days dramatically different than it was three years ago before the pandemic or during the pandemic
4: it, I, you know i think so I, and, and i don't know if i guess a pandemic pandemic certainly had some parts to play into it but um just from a behavioral standpoint, I think so much time uh, being spent on the Internet and in, in some of these areas, which I don't think are necessarily healthy, um, uh, where people are uh, doing strange things and challenge each other to do things that aren't necessarily the most appropriate, and just the language. I, I, in my golf league, I have a lot of uh, teachers, and um, they all talked about how just when schools opened up again, the language of the kids and, uh, became so foul. And it became so normalized because this is what all they did the entire time on the Internet and, and nobody really was uh, um, monitoring that. So um, part of that is there. I also think a good part of it is, you know, mental, mental health has been more in the picture and people have been talking about it more and they're normalizing it more um, and they're making it so it's not such a uh, a taboo thing to talk about. So I think um, that's opening up some channels as well.
0: You know, the solitude and the, the lack of socialized development, and we talked about that with young men, uh, talking about young men the last time you and I did this, that's a scary thing because even the the work from home aspect that happened during the pandemic, when people started to go back to work, workers didn't want to do it. They wanted to stay home.
4: Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about when it comes to kids, uh, a sense of belonging is a huge thing. Um, and And... When that sense of belonging it it started to you know evolve differently in isolation, um, that was very very challenging. So, uh, just from a developmental standpoint, that becomes something.
0: It's going to be interesting to see another 20, 30 years from now because you know <laughs> television was dramatically different, radio was dramatically different before that. It it made people not feel alone when they are alone, and and that's just escalating with you know all the online stuff and everything else
4: it definitely is so it's it's a whole new era in what we're looking at and and what some of those challenges may bring that's just uh, our nature of our work so um when i first came here we really had no license. i was actually the first master's licensed therapist uh hired at directions in uh, 1990 and now we have over 50 so that's just um uh, uh evolving and changing with the needs of the community
0: And the needs of the community, one area that you are concentrating on is on the east side near what used to be Eastland.
4: Yeah. um, uh, Yeah, out in that Eastland Mall area, it's uh, Kimberly Parkway. It's it's actually gone under many different names. Um, This was a... uh, We were gifted property out there about seven years ago. Uh, It used to be called K Chalet, and as that community declined, um, people could not afford to pay dues into that facility and they could no longer keep it running. Um, So we. moved into that space, it was under the condition we'd helped the community. I will tell you, we went with there with the intention of putting in an after-school and summer program, which we did, but it was a very small building, and we were filled up in two days. Uh, we split things in, in ships, and we're filled up two more days, and then we rented a spot down the street, and we're filled up at the end of the week. Um, that told us the high need in that area. Uh, and unfortunately, we've had to turn kids and families away you know, for the last six years. The, uh, our goal was to build a new center that was larger with after school and summer programming. But the longer we were there, the more we realized that uh, that wasn't gonna work. Um, and it wasn't gonna work just because of the fact that there are more significant problems in the area. That Kimberly Parkway community has uh, no rec center. Um, it has uh, no library. It, it really is uh void of, of typical structures or social services that um, help communities when they are struggling. Uh, decided to start working um, with the trauma-informed community building people out of uh, Potrero Hill in California and San Francisco, Uh, we adopted their model, we added uh, the five social determinants of health, and and for the listeners, these are five areas that have been identified to help impoverished areas uh, uh, to grow and thrive, um, and also uh, embrace Annie Casey's uh, two-generation model, although we look at it as a multi-generation model. and and with all of that, we over the course of time and and in um, raising money to build a bigger building, uh, we have. Um Really got the in, in dealing with food and dealing with jobs and dealing with housing, I and mean, that area is number one in evictions. Um, that area, when we started, was number one uh, in infant mortality. And actually, what I found out in a discussion with Matt Habasha of Middle High Food Collective and his team, who also just bought the Kroger out there, so we're going to work together to um, help restore this community, uh, it was actually the number one uh, uh, in infant mortality in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this was really a, a a difficult uh, area that we just couldn't open an after school center we needed to meet the community's needs um, and we have uh, 23 nonprofit partners now who are going to join us um, uh, uh, to help that that uh, community thrive
0: that's great and i guess we're what a couple of months away from uh, the official opening or what
4: so, uh, if anybody else is out there building, um, you all know supply chain issues are real. <laughs> so, our projected date was in June. It's probably more going to be uh, July um, just because of some supply chain issues. But um, I, quite honestly, that's actually very, very good when. when Um, back in the fall when we were just looking at part of the structure and the trusses that was going to put us a year behind so we had to redesign uh, a part of that just so that um, we could speed up the process but uh, yeah by this summer by midsummer we will have our open house and I've walked through it already under construction but it's great i i just you know our staff one of the biggest things that has been hard on them is turning kids and families away they're not going to have to do that anymore Uh, we're going to be able to move to 400 kids and a thousand families and um this is going to be great and now uh working with uh mid ohio food collective and their team um i i I, this is just going to be even a bigger push than what we imagined
0: so for the folks who live in that area what Impact are you hoping to have on them? What areas of their lives are you hoping to impact and make more positive?
4: Actually, it's going to be everything. I mean, you know, part of it is we will have a whole jobs program. Um, uh, we will have we. We traditionally have all of our mental health services. Um, We're working with the management companies, the housing around there um, to stabilize uh, housing, which the transitional nature of our kids isn't good for them, particularly when it comes to school. So if we can stabilize the housing situation um, and keep people from being evicted, you know, everybody wins in that. We win. They win. Um, The management companies don't have the turnover to deal with, so uh, we're we're just looking for channels on that. With food, um, we're going to have a community garden and a farmer's market. And now, with as I mentioned, Middle Ohio out there, um, it gives us many other options as well. Uh, so it, you name it, legal services, uh, um, they're going to be out there as well. Um, and real, all of our services have always been free. We're bringing in senior services, which isn't something that we have done before. Um, we, we're trying to check every box so that this entire community. I will tell you, we started with the community. We started taking uh, um, some moms from the Kimberley area over to our Ohio Avenue Center so that they could dream of what they needed in a center. Um, I think it was critically important that we start with the people who live there Um, And that we let them tell us what they thought that they needed instead of too often. I think we throw programs in communities and then we wonder why people don't use them. Um, To me, that's almost a disrespectful way about going things because it's their community um, and and, uh, they need to have a say in it. We have to move to truly working with people uh, and not just putting things at them and say, okay, now use it.
0: So in recent months, uh, Eastland Mall, which there wasn't much of it left, but it has closed down, slated to be demolished. Is that good or bad for what you're planning to do out there?
4: Uh, I think there's plans for that down the road. Um, I know, uh, you know, there was a... a uh, the city had a plan for um, a transition with uh, the Linden area and then the Hilltop area. Um, uh, they have a new person in the Department of Neighborhoods who's over the Eastland Mall area. I just met with her last week, um, and um, I think there are plans of doing something and not just leaving that the way it is, uh, but we'll see how that uh, transpires. Um, our view is we're not waiting on anyone else, <laughs> we're ready to move forward.
0: Yeah. Now, talking with Dwayne Casares, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. You mentioned the importance of doing things the way the folks there want it done rather than hijacking their neighborhood, which is always a big concern when cities are redeveloping or making changes.
4: Yeah, I just think that that's just critically important. Um, they need to feel like it's theirs. That, you know, because we've been there, and I think also because we've always done outreach uh, with our counseling services, we've always been in every neighborhood. So I think uh, many of the people that we serve, there's been,
0: Directions for Youth and Families is a a, a non-profit mental health facility, but what about youth activities? That's obviously always talked about as a way to help reduce, you know, violent crime in a big city and get kids off the street and engaged in something. How big of an effort do you put into that?
4: Yeah, that's you know that's primarily what we've done from the beginning. Um, and, And our Ohio Avenue Center, which has been open for about 13 years, we've had a lot of success there. Actually, in the last seven years, we seven kids to college out of our programs there which um it doesn't really happen a whole lot many of them were with us since they were like in the sixth grade at least not in those communities Uh, we don't want that to be uh, not the norm we want that to be more normal we also are are working with many other people just to look at we have a lot of people who aren't necessarily need to go to college or are going to have the skill set to totally go to college and and there's many things that you can do in, in, in trades and stuff that um uh would be really really good you know for for futures and pay very well um so we're opening doors to that as well
0: actually the the new opportunities for for kids these days you know with the community colleges. We're on a real roll there for a long time, and then it seems like they kind of lost that momentum. But trade schools and that type of thing seems to be on a lot of people's minds these days again. Yeah,
4: you know, it, it is. And um, there, there's just many avenues out there. And we just need, I, I think that we owe it to the people that we serve that we explore all those avenues and make them available to them and allow them to make their choices.
0: Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Do you have info online about uh, what's going on at East, in the Eastland area and uh, and how folks can find out more about your agency?
4: Yeah, they can check us out at dfyf.org. Or if they want services of any kind or even enroll in some of our programs, it is 614-294-2661. And just ask for the intake department.
0: All right, Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. Thanks again, Dwayne.
4: Thank you, Dave.